This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org donate. Thanks for your support. Good morning, everybody. This is case 19 in the Book of Equanimity, Mount Sumeru. The Introduction. I always admire the novel activities of Yunman. All his life, he pulled out nails and wedges for people. Why did he sometimes open his gate and set out a tray of, tray of glue or dig a pitfall in the middle of the, the road? Try and examine it and see. The main case. The monastic asked Yunman, when not producing a single thought, is there any fault or not? Yunman said, Mount Sumeru. The verse, uh, so each of these koans, there are 100 koans in the Book of Equanimity, and the koans were uh, established by Hungzui, who's a founder in the Soto School, one of the grandfathers, if you will, of the Soto School. Um, uh, and uh, yet he established these koans, which are very subtle and profound, and admired in both in the Soto and Rinzai School. Uh, many of the koans are very, very subtle. And this is, but is also very direct. Uh, so the verse to this koan, um, not producing a single thought, Mount Sumeru, human's gift of teaching is not stingy in intent. If you come with acceptance, he imparts with both hands. If you go on doubting, it's so high you can't get a hold. The blue ocean is wide. The white cl clouds are peaceful. Don't put so much as, uh, as the tip of a hair in there. A phony cock crow can hardly fool me. I still won't agree to let you pass through the gate in confusion. So, um, Master Yuman, Yunman, um, was born about 862, give or take, and died in 949, known as Unman uh, Daishi in Japanese. And he was a major Chinese Zen master in the Tang era in China. Um, there are many koans uh, that he's involved with. Um, and he's known for the directness of his teaching, which you can certainly feel in this koan. His responses says, one word responses to questions. And his answers have no play in them whatsoever. And some characteristics of his answers, which the, they follow the waves, in other words, follow the question, um, right along, um, uh, they're, they're answering the question. Uh, they silence heaven and earth. In other words, there's no wiggle room. You can't get around his answer or out-clever it or out-think it. And he directly answers. Those are the characteristics of, uh, usually, of his answers. Um, in his there are many, many stories in, about Yunman, and I'm, 
um, not going to relate any more, except that in his, as he was dying, he said to his monks, his monastics, um, coming and going is continuous. I must be on my way. Um, and I kind of sympathized with him uh, when recently someone came into Dyson and, uh, after, during a morning sit and said, what am I doing here with this old man walking around with a stick during uh, Canton, uh, which is how we open the sittings in the morning. And I thought, that's interesting. I guess I'm an old man now. And that's how it is. And coming and going is continuous. I must be on my way. Um, the monastery he founded um, in Japan, in China, is still present, by the way. Um, and uh, there's a lot to his life and his, um, his successors and his teachers um, are pretty intimately tied in with the Soto school in some ways. Uh, although he had his own lineage, uh, which eventually died out. So a monastic asked Yunman, when not producing a single thought, is there any fault or not? When not producing a single thought, what is this? Um, when we sit in zazen, uh, especially when we've been sitting a while and for longer periods, a shin or a zazenkai perhaps, um, we certainly experience on one hand a lot of thoughts uh, because as we quiet down, we can see our mind um, with more freedom than ordinarily we could. And um, you get the sense it's a lot, a lot of coming and going. It seems to be continuous. <laughs> um, yet we do quiet down. And um, I think, you know, just experiencing these four 35-minute uh, periods, uh, I suspect we're in a different place than when we entered today. Um, and it usually takes a while before we can begin to experience in our zazen a, a depth of stillness, some clear sense of it, where things deeply quiet down. Uh, sometimes that's years, um, sometimes not. I think I recently told, her the story, told the story I was in New Zealand for uh, five weeks with a friend uh, of mine, of Ahos and mine, who's um, a born-again Christian, very, very devout Christian. And the whole time, uh, we've been friends for 40-plus years, and the whole time I've been studying Zen, she's been studying Christianity, uh, doing Bible study and questioning the, what Christ meant and so on and so forth. Devout. Uh, interestingly enough, she's very progressive in her views, unlike all of her friends who are not. Uh, this is in Colorado. Um, and she attended all of the events, all of the Zen events that were held, and quite a number of them, uh, workshops and sittings. and um, She went to face-to-face -to -face teaching. Um, she did them all. And... Um, and after the first time she received beginning instruction and sat, uh, and, and she's very, very humble and not conceited in any way, didn't know enough to be conceited even if she was, uh, she came up and she 
what she described was samadhi. And that was fascinating to me that that whole, all those years of her practice, which never included sitting quietly, um, always with an active mind, and yet with complete involvement of that active mind, all in on it, uh, and living her life out of that, her life reflected her Bible study. Um, and so um, there it was, uh, and I, I mentioned that uh, she said, I now understand what it means when it, the Bible says, uh, be still and know God. And uh, she had tears in her eyes, so did I. Um, so that stillness is non-reflective. Um, that is within the depth of the stillness. There's no thought occurring to comment on the stillness. Now, obviously, there, there's depths with an S to that stillness. And uh, a lot of it, we can have some commentary and know that we're stiller. And, um, but that samadhi um, brings uh, usually a powerful sense of open calm, calmness, of well-being, a sense of wholeness. Um, you can begin to get a sense how being fully present in that moment is outside time, outside space, outside being and not being, uh, just open awareness with a fair bit of depth, usually. And yet beyond this sense, there's, there's more. Um, there's a place where there's no sense of any feeling whatsoever, any thought, any comparison to anything, and therefore no self-awareness whatsoever. Um, there's no way to compare it. There's no way to speak about it. Um, you know, this is deeply thinking, non-thinking, if you will, uh, to quote Master Dogen. And it's, it's a profound selfless awareness that comes out of that. Um, there's no knowledge in this. <clears throat> uh, and um, this really, in spite of me describing it, nothing to say about it, nothing that can be said. So this uh, absolute samadhi is the doorway to awakening. It's where um, insight happens. And there's always more. And it, it is independent of the practice you're doing. Uh, you know, we start people off in the beginning with a breath practice, and it has a number of different forms to encourage them to uh, learn how to study your own mind, how to concentrate so stillness can develop. But some people do breath practice their whole life. And there's a good chance we don't know that the Buddha was doing a form of breath practice on his awakening. Um, so in that sense, it's not a beginning practice, but we may be at the beginning as we, as we embark on this great adventure of actually both seeing how active our mind is and seeing how profoundly still our mind is underneath that. And what comes out of that stillness uh, is realization, uh, which can be uh, dramatically present or incrementally, almost invisibly prog progressive. In all cases, it's progressively deeper as you sit and encounter samadhi.
And so the monastic asked, when not producing a single thought, is there fault or not? And the fault is a self-centered perspective. I mean, really what the monastic is asking is, who am I? What is the self? So when not producing a single thought, who am I? What, what's left, if you will? Uh, what does my identity rest on? When everything, every thought, every feeling, every conceivable mind production ceases, who are you? And the implications of this question are profound. And yet, one of the implications is, uh, comes back to one of the most common concerns expressed by people in Zazen. And that is reaching a place in Zazen where the mind has begun to settle, when there's some sense of stillness and a depth of space and silence. And there's also almost inevitably a clear sense of the self reacting to that usually with fear or um, pulling back uh, or creation. I probably won't quote this right. Um, there's a, um, um, somebody once said, when the mind is like a great hall in which Silence is completely present, and you hear a voice in that hall. That voice is not your own. I'm slightly misquoting that. Um, it's not yours. It's a conditioned presence. So when our mind begins to settle, Fear may arise, uh, the fear of going any further into letting go, the fear of I'll be extinguished if I continue on. I don't know. I've spent a lifetime creating myself, uh, creating energy around myself, uh, perpetuating. Uh, that energy can be profoundly outgoing, uh, can manifest in confusion, and uh, but it's an energy of me, of alive. It can. Uh, an energy can be manifest in um, pulling back and in protection and in wariness. Um, uh, it can manifest in um, doing good deeds, doing bad deeds. In other words, being an outlier to what you understand as um, the world around you. Um, it can manifest as aggression, manifest in endless ways. And so we deflect. We move away from that stillness and don't go any further. We pull back, as this monastic is doing. We pause within our zazen and start asking questions that take us out of our zazen and into our ordinary discriminating mind. We ask, what happens when I'm quieting down? 
and I'm not producing thoughts, you know? Am I there or am I not there? And we're not trusting something about our own experience. But it's also probably universal that we encounter this. Uh, this is ground we know nothing about and, can, and ultimately can know nothing about and usually have not experienced before, at least when we experience this place for the first time. So it's probably universal to anyone doing zazen deeply. And there's nothing wrong with it or unnatural about it. It makes perfect sense. And we'll probably have to go within our zazen again and again and again and see for ourselves that this fear that arises, this question, that's this pulling back, is another empty Dharma gate. It's another place of, that has no inherent existence except arising out of our fear, meaning out of our conditioning, out of our accustomed way of protecting ourselves, out of our fear of dying. So it can take a while until, and, and it has to come with a certain determination and faith and desperation uh, before we can say for ourselves in our own words what the Buddha said, hello Mara, I know you, I recognize you, I see you. And the Buddha touched the ground. And you'll see statues of the Buddha in the ground, the earth, mudra, uh, for that really important moment in our zazen. And yet if we seize it as, in our mind as an important moment, it, again, that's a subtle form of retreat. So what is at the bottom of that fear? And what's at the bottom of you yourself? That's what we're exploring. Yuman said, Mount Sumeru. Sumeru, according to the um, sacred um, Buddhist text, Google, uh, <laughs> um, which I use all the time to, you know, in the early days of Google, it was terrible for Buddhism, but now it's got lots and lots of good information and original sutras and teachings. And uh, so I don't necessarily have to carry around a thousand books with me for reference, but Mount Sumeru uh, is a sacred five-peaked mountain of Hindu, Jan, and Buddhist cos cosmology and is considered to be the center of all the physical, metaphysical, and spiritual universes. And um, many famous Hindu and Buddhist temples have been built as symbolic representations of this mountain. So in body-mind study of the way, the fascicle of Master Dogen that we're studying, he references this. And it's interesting, and it, it directly addresses this koan. Um, now, mountains, rivers, earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars are mind. At just this moment, what is it that appears directly in front of you? 
Mountains, rivers, and earth do not merely mean mountains, rivers, and earth where you are standing. There are various kinds of mountains, such as Great Sumeru and Small Sumeru. Some mountains extend widely, some rise up steeply. A billion worlds and innumerable lands can be found in a mountain. There are mountains suspended in form, there are mountains suspended in emptiness. And he goes on. But So the verse to this koan, not producing a single thought, Mount Sumeru. Human's gift of teaching is not stingy in intent. If you come with acceptance, he imparts with both hands. If you go on doubting, it's so high you can't get a hold. The blue ocean is wide. The white clouds are peaceful. Don't put so much as the tip of a hair in there. A phony cock crow can hardly fool me. I still won't agree to let you pass through the gate in confusion. So in the commentary, which is pretty extensive to this very short, pithy and precise koan, I'm going to read some of it. One uh, Sung says, who wrote the commentary, uh, you ask me whether there is any fault or not when not raising a single thought. I will bring out Sumeru as though right before, as though right before your eyes. The benefit of that gift of teaching is certainly not stingy. So he's pointing, I will bring out Sumeru as though right before your eyes. Doesn't matter where you look. Mount Sumeru is right before your eyes. The benefit of that gift of teaching is certainly not stingy. What does that imply? How large is Mount Sumeru? Where does it begin? Where does it end? How high is it? Jung just said, when the gate of generosity opens, nothing can block it. Sumeru in Sanskrit means wonderfully high. Being composed of four precious minerals, it is called wonderful. Standing out alone above all peaks, it is called high. Nothing can block it. How would you have to see this? the reality that you're in, so that nothing can block it. How would you have to understand that? And where would you yourself be? If you come with acceptance, he imparts with both hands what generosity human offers. He offers it with both hands. And that's a crucial point of being a student, of being a practitioner, is without discarding your own sense 
of what is trustworthy and your own sensitivity to what is right within you, which is, has to be a cultivated perspective, to come to the Dharma with both hands, to understand that teachings that you may relate to are great, but if you don't relate them, relate to them. Um, be patient, study it, study yourself, and you may find those teachings have something to offer you, maybe exactly what you need. I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago, a Fusatsu talk on karma and on um, implicit in that karma is uh, rebirth. You can understand rebirth in a lot of different ways. But I spoke to rebirth as rebirth uh, of the future manifestations of our actions in lives to come and then lives past, actually. Karma always goes both ways, forward and backwards. And the karma of our life always comes from both ways, forwards and backwards, future and past. Now, that may be something we may or may not believe. I didn't believe it for a long time, but uh, that's the Buddhist teaching, and that is my experience. And, and to the extent I can say that's my experience, uh, and the rest of it is a mystery, because I certainly can't account in my life and the lives of many, many people I see around me um, what is how this single lifetime accounts for all of their life. It's, it's fascinating. Um, I'm getting off track, but I think it's worth speaking of. I saw a, a little clip uh, yesterday on a woman who's now 91, and uh, she was uh, on a train to a concentration camp and heading towards Germany and they were in Belgium, about to leave Belgium, and she was on the train with her very sick, probably dying father, and with her either fiancé or husband, I think it was her fiancé at the time. And everybody knew what was gonna happen, just in case you have, you know, sometimes you'll see people, the people on the train didn't know, and the people in the, you know, in Germany didn't know. Everybody knew what was gonna happen. They knew they were all dead. And they made the decision to, um, to jump out of the train. And people said, no, 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 don't jump out of the train because they said they'll punish us if somebody is missing. And she thought, they'll punish you, they're gonna kill you. How are they gonna punish you? They will kill you no matter what. Uh, but she didn't want to abandon her father uh, who was dying and there and very sick. And um, she fell asleep uh, while the train's going in the rocking, and then she woke up and she realized she had to jump. She had to jump. And so she went right to the small window, shoved herself through it. Her fiance did too. They're between the cars, and she jumps and he jumps. And um, she didn't get hurt, and she's down there, and the train goes away, and she looks up, and there's her fiance coming down the tracks to her. They were still in Belgium. They were hid successfully, uh, made it through the war. And then uh, 30 years later, they're in Israel, living in Israel. And um, she's walking down the street, and there's a tap on her shoulder. And uh, she turns around, and, she, and the woman calls her name, and she said, 
Um, she says, yes, that's me, but I don't know you. She says, I was on that train with you that was going to the concentration camp. Um, you don't know me, but after you left, your father uh, regained consciousness. And he asked where you were, and they said, she jumped. And he said, thank God. Tell her I will always love her. And she did the right thing. And so there's that message 30 years later. And she never saw that woman again, by the way. The woman went off. She didn't get her name. And uh, I mentioned that about karma. Because it's one of the things that this practice does, is it opens us up to other possibilities other than what our uh, set understanding of ourself and others allows. I have an exact same episode in my life where my birth mother, when I died, was when she died, I was two. I have no memory of her. And maybe 40 years later, I was given the single possession that I couldn't find any information about her. My father remarried and so on and so forth. And, um, and there's a lot to the story, which I'm leaving out. But uh, I was given the single possession that somebody had of hers. So this was a um, young uh, Jewish woman growing up in Brooklyn who never left the city, had virtually no education. Um, and what I was given was a bodhisattva of compassion figure that she had. And it was put in my hand at a time when I'd come back east to check out Zen Mountain Monastery. I was living in Colorado and practicing in a different place, but I was finishing my practice there. And I knew I wanted to continue. So there I am looking at this statue given to me. And it's, it's not as if it was my mother handing it to me. I mean, literally, that's how I understood it and felt it. Um, so, talk about karma that, don't talk about it, it just is. So, an ancient poem says, wait until they agree in their hearts when my command carries through. So, you have to be willing yeah, to open your eyes and open your heart. Because you're never going to see this with, a closed, with your eyes closed. You have to consider the possibility that what you yourself knows is not enough to carry you past your suffering and the suffering of others. Something more is required. Something you can know nothing about, but can certainly access. And the gateway through that is what we're doing here today. It's a gateway. You have to enter the gateway. And you have to go forward from there. Start a journey. Tiang Tun's verse at this point, I'm quoting from the commentary, has an all-encompassing effect. If you hesitate and don't come forth, it's a thousand, ten thousand miles away from you. You'll be unable to see it even from afar. The whole thing is like cliffs crumbling, rocks splitting, standing like a mile-high wall, impossible to get a hold of. That's exactly how it is when your mind is closed. I mean, it's just... There's, it's impossible. There's no possibility of, of true compassion being present in your life. None. I mean, just think of the public figures we see. 
who say what they say and do what they do. And then when the karma of that begins to surface, spin it more and more and more and more. Think how we do that as well. Um, and, and how, and, and so the question I asked myself was, what do I have to do to open my heart? I'll do whatever I need to do. I'm willing. And in this case, at least keep on sitting, please. And if you do accept it, keep on sitting. And if you don't accept it, keep on sitting, please. <laughs> and of course, in reality, you've never been apart from it. Um, Tiang Tan says, I've never taken it away. He says, this and the above phrase, in reality, you've never been apart from it. Um, the above phrase is, if you go on doubting it so high you can't get a hole, and then he says, in reality, you've never been apart from it. This and, the, this and the above phrase are opposite in delusion and enlightenment. Their complementary opposition is distinctly clear. So this is something to respect. I alluded to this a few minutes ago that I've always paid intense attention to my teachers, to what they say, to what they do. Um, even when I think what they do is an example of what not to do, which isn't common, but does happen, but especially to the subtlety of their teachings. And that's because our tendency is to come from a self-centered perspective. And so we may not understand the Dharma at any given point because the Dharma is coming from an awake perspective. Our teachers are coming from an awake perspective usually. And so that takes a leap and it takes some generosity because every presentation of the Dharma is specific to a form, to a person to specific words that you may or may not relate to. And that's fine. So find a way in. Find a way you can relate to, you can understand it. In the teachings, it says that Mount Sumeru goes 80,000 leagues below the water and 80,000 leagues above the water. Only an ocean could accommodate it. I would say not even an ocean can accommodate it. Not even this whole world could accommodate it. The, mountains, the mountain has never moved at all times, and the clouds appearing and disappearing are always peaceful. Dongshan says, the green mountain is the father of the white clouds. The white clouds are the children of the green mountain. The white clouds hang around all day. The green mountain doesn't notice at all. Can a single thought arising and pass away be contained here? That's why Tiang Tang says, the blue mountain is wide. The white clouds are peaceful. Don't put so much as a tip of a hair in there. Don't add anything to the stillness, to the wakefulness that you can enter out of your zazen. Don't add an extra thought, an extra assessment. Don't add an extra desire. 
A saying in Zen is, don't put sand in the eye. Those are our delusions. We don't need to do that. And then the commentary says, if you contend that Yunman was not stingy in giving teachers, yet he even put Mount Sumeru in the eye, which is interesting. In this verse on Mount Sumeru, we are faced at every point the bloodline goes through, at every, every beat is, in, is the order, does not arbitrarily produce rationalizations or increase conscious feelings. In other words, in this verse, the bloodline from Bodhidharma to the present moment goes right through. This is the realization of the Dharma. Really, how can someone who doesn't produce a single thought still ask if there's any fault or not, right? I mean, if you're not producing a single thought, you're not going to ask that question. Even if you always remain in the state of not producing a single thought, when you bring, up, bring it up for examination, what can it do? There's nothing it can do. There's no handle, there's no way, there's no thought. And that's why the, the, uh, the poem, the verse says, a phony cock crow can hardly fool me. I still won't agree to let you pass through the gate in confusion. Last uh, week, Shugen Roshi transmitted the Dharma to say Sensei. And so this, a phony cock crow can hardly fool me. I still won't agree to let you pass through the gate in confusion. It's completely applicable here. He would have never transmitted to her unless she was clear. That's his obligation to all of us. That's his obligation that goes back to his teacher and to Maizumi Roshi and to Yunman, and to Bodhidharma, and to the Buddha, through all space and time. And so I still won't agree to let you pass through the gate in confusion. That's what the face-to-face -face teachings are about. When we're able, within our, face -to -face, within our practice, to settle down enough to start to develop some clarity and some stillness, which takes time, how much time? It's not linear, but it, it's where the practice goes, if you practice. And really, the most crucial aspect of this dharma is the transmission to a worthy successor. And that transmission starts the moment you enter as a student, although the student usually doesn't realize that. And it doesn't necessarily have to end in a formal transmission of the Dharma with a ceremony, etc. It's transmission of your own awakening that's being transmitted. It's transmission of the line-to-line -line transmission of compassion that you're awakening to. That's what's going on.
So the most crucial aspect of this Dharma is the transmission to a worthy success. So that the bottomless compassion and wisdom of the Tathagata can continue. So we can all practice and realize the Buddha way. So that the blue ocean is wide and we see that for ourselves. And the white clouds are peaceful and we see that for ourselves. And this blue ocean and white clouds is your endless body, your very body, your very mind, your endless wisdom manifesting on this day in this place. Thanks so much for listening. The Monastery's quarterly journal, Mountain Record, has a new home at mountainrecord.org. For over 30 years, Mountain Record has been offering spiritual seekers of all faiths a unique journey through words and images. Each quarterly issue delivers a thought-provoking array of classic teachings, contemporary wisdom, stunning photographs, and news from the Mountains and Rivers Order. For more information, to subscribe, or to read our open-access articles, visit mountainrecord.org.